Domestic violent extremism has become one of the biggest threats to law enforcement and members of the public. In the past few years, individuals affiliated with anti-government and white supremacist groups have attacked houses of worship, grocery stores, demonstrations, and even law enforcement officers themselves. As a result, combating domestic violent extremism is a priority for law enforcement at every level in this country. Today, we're joined by John Cohen, who most recently was a coordinator for counterterrorism and assistant secretary for counterterrorism and threat prevention for the United States Department of Homeland Security. John has over three decades of experience in law enforcement, counterintelligence, and homeland security, and he's held numerous high-ranking government positions over his career. I'm Patrick Gills, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. But John, thank you for joining us today on The Blue View. John, you talk a good bit about, uh, and you did, you covered it quite well, uh, the, the big challenge now of going dark, uh, using these platforms in order to be able to communicate in a way that makes it more difficult for law enforcement to be able to track these, you know, especially when it comes to terrorist activity, um, any criminal element for that much, you know, for that point. Uh, Talk a little bit about encryption. Uh, you know, we talk about social media, and social media has been really our platform of a lot of what we've talked about. But encryption goes much further than just in social media and the challenges that it creates when you're trying to paint a picture of counterterrorism uh, in this country. Uh, encryption is, is is making our job increasingly uh, more difficult. Uh, can you touch a little bit on on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a it's a massive challenge facing law enforcement. You know, there's a great expression that I, I've heard over the past. You know, over the course of the last several years, you know, the threat actors plan in private, play in public. And, and what that means is that, um, you know, again, foreign and domestic threat actors, whether they be criminal organizations or foreign intelligence services, they're leveraging uh, encrypted, commercially available encrypted applications, WhatsApp, you know, Signal um, and others uh, to engage in very tactical conversations regarding operational activities that they seek to um, engage in. Again, whether it's setting up a drug deal or involving in, in, in pre-operational surveillance uh, or, um, or, or intelligence collection activities, you know, the, the wide availability of being able to um, use encrypted communication capabilities that make uh, interception by in investigators or law enforcement difficult both simultaneously and, and retroactively um, is a problem. Um, you, you essentially have to have native access to one of the devices uh, that's involved in this communication. You know, I remember, you know, I typically would have to uh, be listening in as my informants were making calls to crooks that we were working on developing, you know, planning a buy with or uh, engaging in, in, in investigatory activities. And, um, that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to set up a, a you know, an intercept uh, when they're using encrypted capabilities. It's very easy. It's very difficult to retrieve information, you know, subject to a search warrant or, or other court order um, when you don't have the ability to decrypt these communications. At the same time, I think it's just worth restating that they're, they're a very big part of what uh, these threat actors are trying to accomplish is achieved through the use of open platforms. You know, if you're looking at Russian intelligence or Iranian intelligence who, who are trying to create disruptive events in local communities in the United States, they may have sort of the planning discussions uh, over encrypted channels, but they will then 
introduce, amplify, uh, and promote content as broadly as possible publicly. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get as many people as they can to consume this content um, in the hopes that that some of those people consuming it will react to it. And whether that reaction is, you know, holding simultaneous demonstrations uh, in a city that are intended to to evolve into violent conflict or whether it's encouraging people to go out and and engage in a directed attack. Um, So we have to be able to look at both. And unfortunately, you know, from an intelligence analysis perspective, we're still catching up to figuring out how to evaluate that that content which we see on the open platforms. And we still have very real technical and even legal uh, impediments to being able to capture encrypted information um, either uh, in real time uh, or uh, retroactively pursuant to a court order. So a number of challenges on that front and a direct impact again on the day-to-day capabilities and, and, and operational activities of law enforcement. And Johnny, uh, you go back to 9-11. 9-11 changed our world in a lot of, it changed the entire landscape but in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, as, as we saw the, I guess, the, just the hatred towards America and, and the carnage that could be done uh, here in our homeland. Um, we also learned something in 9-11, and that was a sharing of information. There's a lot of information and a lot of pieces to a puzzle uh, that uh, that don't show a full picture until we, until we start putting them all together. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between local and state law enforcement and federal uh, partners from your experience with uh, DHS and, and how it's so vitally important for us to be able to, to, to have some conduit to, to carry this information to people who will probably most likely the ones to, to have the first contact with any of this uh, criminal activity? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. Um, and it's, it's something that I've actually wrestled with. Um, working closely with FOP and, and and other organizations with since September 11th. I mean, I didn't go into detail earlier on, and maybe I should have, but you know, I've worked as the Homeland Security Advisor for multiple cities, multiple states, again, Republican and Democratic administrations. I worked in the intelligence uh, community and the Director of National Intelligence, working on information sharing with state, local um, organizations. I've served in DHS twice, um, you know, both times in two different administrations having the exact same job. So I'm not sure what that says about my career advancement abilities, but, um, but I've served as the head of INA and I've served as the counterterrorism coordinator in, in two administrations. And I think the department has, um, has to some degree struggled uh, in consistently fully appreciating the important role um, that state and locals play in the conduct of their mission uh, and figuring out exactly, you know, what the sweet spot is as it relates to information sharing with state and locals. At times throughout the, the, you know, the last several, the last two decades, I think DHS and FBI, quite frankly, have done it well. I think um, other times uh, it hasn't. And I think what's important is that when, to, to acknowledge that when DHS and the FBI have done the information sharing thing well, it's been based on a couple of things. One, the Bureau and DHS working in close partnership. Um, Second, um, both the Bureau and DHS having a good understanding of what the information needs and what the information priorities are for state and locals. I can remember times 
early on uh, during the Bush administration when we were having folks from the intelligence community go to local communities and talking about the threat of foreign terrorism and to be met with, you know, a response of, you know, uh, in which the, the locals would say, hey, look, I understand that, you know, the threat of Al Qaeda is, um, you know, important to you. But, you know, I think it was Chief Ramsey uh, from D.C. at the time who said, but I had 400 homicides in my city last year and not one of them was committed by, conduct, committed by Osama bin Laden. And so I think sometimes at the federal level, uh, we forget uh, or overlook that the priorities that exist at the federal level, they may be important to state and locals, but they may not be the top priorities for state and local. I mean, if I'm a local community today, I'm really concerned about extremism and, and potential attacks against my police officers, but I'm also probably more concerned about the growing level of homicides, aggravated assaults, um, and car thefts that may be plaguing my city as well. So figuring out how best to, you know, to, to exchange the information from the federal level to the state and local level that not only is helpful to the state and locals in being able to recognize an emerging problem, but fits into their priority scheme, or at least recognizing that the state and locals may have other problems that they're dealing with as well. And at the same time, you know, I think we sometimes underestimate the value at a national level that comes from understanding what's going on in local communities. Uh, one of the things we did the last time I was at DHS is, um, you know, we would have every two weeks a call with, you know, uh, with uh, Jim Pasco and, and his colleagues from major city chiefs, major county sheriffs, the intel commanders from those organizations, um, Association of State Criminal Investigative Agencies and, the, and, and other associations. And the purpose of the call wasn't so much to, um, to just basically brief the state and locals, but it was to hear from the state and locals what they were concerned about, what they were seeing, what were the problems facing their cities. And we actually, I have to say, for the first time since the process was, um, was instituted, we actually issued a number of national terrorism advisory system alerts that were very much informed by the observations that were provided by the state and local authorities. And that's how it should be working. I think unfortunately, um, it, 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 it hasn't been done that way consistently. I can tell you that the current Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, he, he's a former prosecutor. I actually worked with him when I was uh, a narcotics investigator assigned to a federal task force in LA. Um, he gets it, he understands the, uh, the world from a state and local perspective. He understands the world from a perspective of being a crime fighter. Uh, and it's a real important priority for him to ensure that the department prioritizes not only its relationship with state and locals, but the information sharing with state and locals. Yeah, you know, we had him, uh, he was on a podcast with us uh, recently and, uh, and and posed the, the same uh, exact question uh, that I'm going to pose to you. And I, and I think uh, probably get the same answer. Uh, and it's something that we've been, you know, talking considerably uh, about uh, with our federal counterparts is the importance of that local and state element and the benefit of task force. Uh, task force to address these issues and this information sharing and help put it, put these uh, pieces together. Can can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience in working with these task force, the value of these task force? What can we do to have more and, and enhance what we have to to, to in, in, in increase our, our safety for both public safety and for citizens alike? 
<laughs> so at the risk of uh, um, having people get angry at me, I'm going to say something that I think may be provocative, which is organizations don't share information, people share information. I mean, I served on gang, ta throughout my career, I've served on task forces, gang task forces, um, you know, narcotics task forces that have worked on national level problems, on local problems, um, counterintelligence task forces. We've created task forces for to facilitate information sharing. It's the relationships and bonds that, that develop between people. It's the understanding of the capabilities of different organizations that serve on task forces. That's where the value really comes, um, from my perspective, at least. You know, my department had a great relationship with the local FBI, not because the chief sat down with, you know, the, the special agent in charge of that region and, and they came to an organizational agreement. It's because, you know, we work closely, you know, whether it was conducting surveillances or providing information on local bank robbers with the bank robbery investigators, you know, we worked, I, we worked joint cases. I, were, I, I had the great fortune. It was one of the, probably one of the most interesting things I did in my entire career. I worked on a multi-jurisdictional task force, OSA death case, organized crime case um, that I co-led with an FBI agent. Not only did that FBI agent, you know, be, ultimately become one of my closest friends, but during the course of the time that I, you know, I was working on that investigation and subsequent to that, we we established personal relationships between, uh, you know, officers from my department and, and the local bureau, ATF, U.S. Marshal Service, IRS. And those became contacts that I relied upon um, not only while I was on the job as a police officer, but when I came to D.C. and worked on Capitol Hill, when I worked in the Office of National Drug Control Policy, when I worked at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So, you know, I, we joke about this, but there are people who I am working on daily. Uh, I mean, I first met Jim Pascoe when I was working on Capitol Hill uh, and he was working for ATF. And we've not only developed a friendship um, and a working relationship that is extended well beyond the 90s, um, but we've worked together to solve problems. Um, there are people who work for with other associations now. You know, I think you know Ron Brooks, who works with the Narcotics Officers Association and and major county sheriffs uh, and other groups. He and I work narcotics cases together. Uh, and the example I, I shared with you earlier. Um, you know, I first met Ali Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, when he was a line prosecutor working for the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. And I was a, a local narc assigned to first a DEA task force and an FBI task force. So, you know, the relationships you form, even if you're a young police officer or deputy sheriff, the relationships you will form by serving on these task forces not only will benefit your community and, and your ability to do your job while you're on that task force, but will benefit you throughout your career as you continue to cultivate and maintain those relationships because that's where information sharing occurs. Um, it's, it's people who know each other, they trust each other, they've worked together, they have an understanding of what their, each other's role is uh, and they maintain those lines of communication throughout their career. Yeah, it's a, my opinion. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take it a step further. That's a life lesson there. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, it really is all about relationships and those connections. Without those relationships, uh, you know, I had a sheriff tell me one time, uh, we were talking about an issue, uh, something that we were working within my agency, and I had a sheriff tell me one time, so that's the problem with law enforcement. You know, people get something, they think they have something of value, and they, they use it until 
till a time when uh, they don't want to share it with anybody until it's time to brag about what they did and not give her not give everybody else an opportunity to be part of be part of it. And, and I think that that's not just a law enforcement problem. I think that's a problem in society where we just uh, uh, we've lost some of those interpersonal skills. John, I, I appreciate this great insightful information uh, that you've shared about a very a, a very concerning and growing and ever evolving uh, threat uh, to to our profession to the safety of a uh, the community we serve. I'll give you give you uh, an opportunity to do some final thoughts and we'll close this up. Yeah, I mean, let me just say, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. I mean, I have to say, as I look back over the past 38 plus years, um, I consider myself a cop. I mean, uh, I am so proud of my profession. Uh, I'm proud that I was able to work the streets, but I'm also proud of the fact that those relationships and the knowledge I gained working patrol, SWAT, um, you know, as a detective, I never made it past acting sergeant. So I wasn't a police chief. I wasn't a captain. Um, you know, I was basically a patrol officer, two striper who served as an acting sergeant for an investigative unit. Um, but what I learned during that experience has informed all my work on Capitol Hill, all my work in, at very senior and some of the most senior levels of the federal government or state government as well. So my first thing I would share people with or share with folks listening is that be proud of your profession, but also don't be hesitant to recognize the problems. Um, this is a profession right now that you know is under great scrutiny. Um, it's dealing, and that scrutiny is coming at a time where we're de- dealing with the most diverse and evolving threat environment. And it's an environment that quite frankly is dangerous, um, probably more dangerous today than it was when I was working patrol in the late eight, in the mid eighties. Um, and it was pretty bad then. So um, you just have, I think my, my parting words would be, be proud of your profession, but stay informed. Uh, recognize that um, the profession is vulnerable to both physical acts of violence and being targeted for the same disinformation campaigns that are inspiring um, violence across our communities uh, and maintain your awareness of the evolving threat environment and incorporate that into your day-to-day activities because that's what's going to keep you alive. Absolutely. Great, uh, great advice. Uh, I appreciate your insight, but I also want to thank you for uh, for the work that you do uh, and, and how vitally and important it has been in, uh, in keeping our, our country and our, and our community safe. So thank you for all of your work and, and don't let up. Continue continue to push that fight and share that information and help, uh, help call, you know, put, uh, help call attention to, to just growing concerns on, on, uh, I guess the evolution of crime in our country as technology changes. So does, uh, so does crime. So again, uh, John, thank you for all you do, but thank you for joining us on blue view and sharing your views with our members and into our viewers. Thank you for tuning in and, and, being part of the Blue View, where we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every day in communities across this country and make a difference in the lives of those they serve. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else to get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.